Welcome to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. We are continuing our series following the prophets, and today we are looking at the book of Isaiah, a prophet who became very important for many of the New Testament writers as they would often refer back to his prophecy and demonstrate how it was fulfilled in the life of Christ and the church. And so it's important that we understand some of the content of Isaiah and how Isaiah was using that content in its context in order to better understand the New Testament when we read it. And so looking at Isaiah, he is a prophet to the southern kingdom. And if you go back in the history of Israel, you'll find that after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam is unable to keep a unity of the nation, and we see somewhat of a civil war, a split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and we end up with a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom from henceforth will be called Israel, and the southern kingdom will be called Judah, and so when you read through the prophets and you hear references to Israel or to Judah, they are often making the distinction between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The history of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is not pleasant. Both kingdoms were very unfaithful to the covenant that God had established with the Jewish people. However, the northern kingdom seems to be a little more wicked in that they never even have one good king. Every king that sits on the throne is evil, and they have completely neglected Yahweh worship at the prescribed location, the temple in Jerusalem, because they don't want to go down to the southern kingdom to worship, and so they establish alternative worship sites, which are not okay. God has not prescribed those locations as being a place where you could meet with the holy God, only in Jerusalem. And so the whole nation of Israel becomes very wicked and corrupt because of their leadership and because of this division that has taken place from the southern kingdom. And because of that, as Isaiah writes to the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom is very close to an invasion from Assyria, and God is using this country as a vehicle of judgment for the north. And the same thing's going to happen to the south. In 586 BC, we're going to see the Babylonians come in and take over the southern kingdom. But before then, we're going to get some of the uh, great literature that we get from the prophets who are warning the people of their iniquity. They're warning them that if they don't turn and repent, then bad things are going to happen. And that was just a part of the covenant agreement that they all came into uh, under this covenant with Moses, under the renewed covenant with David, and just as um, a general principle of disobeying and sinning against the God who created you and made you. And as we look at Isaiah, he starts out by saying that Judah doesn't know its master. It says in this opening statement that an ox knows its master, but Judah doesn't know its God. And that's a problem because if they don't know their God, if they've completely forgotten who God is, then they can't really serve him. And I find it interesting that he compares them to an ox because He says, an ox knows, you don't know, which means you're dumber than an ox. I don't know if that's where that expression came from, but often God uses cattle terminology to refer to his people when they're doing wrong. And that goes back to Sinai, because when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, he finds the people worshiping a golden calf. And from that point on, God starts to refer to them as a stiff-necked people. And now he goes again to the cattle imagery to say that they're not even as wise as an ox is. And this is just the principle that if you're going to be an image bearer of your God, then if you 
honor Yahweh and worship Yahweh, then we reflect him. We are image bearers of the, the ultimate creator, which is great. But if we choose to worship lesser things, then we begin to bear that image. And so those who will worship idols, worship cows that they've made out of the clay and out of the gold that comes out of the earth that God made, and they exalt those handmade items as their God, then they begin to bear that image. And so God is calling them what they are. He says, you want to be cows? I'll call you cows. And that's exactly who you are. That's the image that you will bear. And we'll see that repeated throughout many of the prophets as they make reference to the people of God who have fallen away from him. Uh, but here we have in the opening chapter, uh, in verses 11 through 15, God making a statement that he hates the sacrifices of Israel, of Judah. He hates their sacrifices. It's a stench to him. He doesn't like their celebration of festivals and new moons. And while that, on one hand, seems odd because God commanded that they sacrifice and that they observe these festivals, on the other hand, we see that they don't really mean it. They're just going through the motions. This has become a ritual and just a religious ceremony, but since they don't even know God, how significant can a sacrifice really be? A sacrifice was supposed to be an outpouring of one's love for God and one's uh, acknowledgement of God's holiness and one's sinfulness. But they no longer see themselves as standing before a holy God because they don't even acknowledge him in their day-to-day -day lives. And that shows up in many immoral activities that are popping up in the passage here that we see in Judah. They are no longer defending the orphan. They're no longer pleading the widow's case. And God calls upon them to wash themselves and to begin living lives that are honorable to God. Um, and then it says that he will wash them as white as snow there in verse 18, a passage that most of us are very well familiar with. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. And so we have this reference. Uh, it's sort of indirect, but it goes back to the Mosaic commandments and the covenant that was established. These were principles that if they obeyed them, they would live. If they disobeyed them, they would not live. If they obeyed them, God would prosper them in the land. If they refused, then there would be swift judgment, and they would be kicked out of the land, which is exactly what's going to happen. God is simply upholding his end of the promise, and the people are simply disobeying and refusing to uphold their end of this covenant agreement. And uh, so we really see the Mosaic Covenant shining through in this prophetic work. And so if you're not familiar with Moses and his law, then this becomes hard to understand. But they were supposed to care for the widow and care for the needy, care for the foreigner, and care for those who were weak and unable to help themselves. That was embedded within the Mosaic Law. And here they are doing the opposite of that. They are feasting and praying on the weak and the helpless rather than uh, protecting them and caring for them. And so when we get to chapter 2, it fast forwards and it makes a reference to the latter days and the last days or the latter days. And we need to be careful that expression will be used often in the prophets. Uh, and it's 
very easy for us to assume that that's always talking about the eschaton and things that are future even to us right now, but that's not always going to be the case. When we get to the book of Joel, he talks about in the latter days, the Spirit of God's going to pour out on sons and daughters, and in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and basically says, that has happened. That has transpired right now. 1 John 2.18 says that it is the last hour. He talks about it being the last hour here and now. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago your fathers were spoken to by the prophets, but in these last days God has spoken to us through his Son. And so he calls, the writer of the Hebrews calls the period starting with Jesus and moving forward the last days. First um, Peter 1, 20 says Jesus is manifest in these last times for the sake of you. And uh, these are just a few samplings of the many passages that could be referenced in uh, the New Testament that would indicate that the last times have already come. Um, And so certainly there are elements that are still yet to come. Um, When you look at the book of John and he talks about the last day, the resurrection will happen on the last day, that's obviously future from us. And there are certain aspects of the end that are yet to come. But there are certain elements of the latter times or the latter days that have begun when Jesus came, and they continue to be fulfilled even in our midst right now. And so we are, I mean, clearly, based on Scripture's own testimony, we are living in the last days and have been for 2,000 years. Um, But yet there are still elements that are yet to be fulfilled, and we await them. Um, So be careful, is all I'm saying, is when you hear these words, the latter days, it doesn't always mean future from us. It could mean things that have already transpired. And we'll talk about those as they come about. But right here in this particular passage, it does seem that the latter days is looking at perhaps the end of time, even future from us, because it references a time that God is going to basically make everything right and that he will um, issue out all judgment and protect people from the chaos of the world. And uh, there are many references here that would cause us to assume that maybe a, a final eschaton is envisioned. The main point, however, is that God will prevail. From Mount Zion, God is going to prevail, and in the end, he will make everything right. And people, in the end, will seek wisdom from God's mountain. So whether you interpret that as being a final eschatological place where God comes and he sets up his new heaven and new earth, and that's where people will get their wisdom from God, or whether this is in some way partly uh, fulfilled in the person of Christ, who is the cornerstone, he is the new rock of God and mountain of God, and from him and his people, uh, we get wisdom as we gather together. Uh, There are many ways that this could be interpreted, but however you interpret it, we understand that Isaiah is saying God will prevail in the end, and he calls on Jacob to seek it now. Jacob is going to serve as a symbol that is representing the entire people of God. So he may be using one name, but this is a corporate solidarity of the people of God. And so he is calling on Israel, he's calling on Judah, he's calling on the Jewish people to seek God's will now and seek it because if they don't, then there's going to be judgment. And what we get from Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 3 is that they have put their trust in gold, in horses, in chariots, in strong people, in warriors. And God is going to come and ravage the land like Sodom. 
There are many references here to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's comparing Israel and their fate to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's comparing Judah and their fate to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he makes a couple of references there in chapter 2 that the people are going to eventually have to go and hide in the rocks and in the holes in the ground because of the judgment that's coming upon them. And this is a reference to the Babylonians that will come and take over. God is going to raise up people to come and to completely devastate the land. They're going to burn their buildings. They're going to burn their crops. They're going to burn even their idols. They're going to leave their idols behind to crawl into these holes. And this is how God is going to get rid of idolatry in the land if they don't just come and offer it up on their own. And uh, this is interesting, and this is true with us today. Like God is going to have his way. It's going to happen the way he wants it to happen. Righteousness is going to prevail. Sin will be dealt with and removed. And so why not get rid of it now? Why wait for him to force it out of your hand? Just remove it from yourself. Because otherwise, we end up doing it in a shameful way where we could um, do it in such an honorable way that uh, God is glorified here and now. We don't have to just wait for that glory to be on display when he comes and he removes the sin from us by force. And, and so this is a um, good reminder for even a New Testament Christian of how to live for God in the here and now, not just to wait for a final judgment for him to make things completely right. Um, but in 2.11, in chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, the proud look of a man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It goes on to read, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day but the idols will completely vanish. So God is going to come and he's going to destroy idolatry. He's going to destroy the lofty, the exalted, the proud. And he calls on the people to help the widows and the orphans, those who are young and helpless. He calls on them to be exalted and he's going to exalt them. In fact, when you get to chapter three, it says that the warriors are going to be taken away and that a lad will be the leader. Chapter 3 reminds us once again that it is those who were weak that need to be looked after. This is a form of social justice in the nation of Israel under God's law that people are supposed to be looked after. They're not supposed to be neglecting those who are weak and helpless. When we get to Isaiah chapter 4, though, we get some strong theological uh, descriptions that I think we should conclude with today. And there's a mention here in chapter 2 of the branch of the Lord. The branch of the Lord. Now, the phrase branch will show up in other places, but usually it's the branch of Jesse or the branch of David. But here we have him being referred to as the branch of the Lord, which reminds us that the Messiah to come will be both of human descent and divine descent. He is a God-man. But this branch of the Lord here is going to bring restoration, and he's going to bring um, beauty to the earth in such a way that it, it goes on to display uh, describe it as having a canopy over the people. Now, interestingly enough, the word canopy there is always used uh, everywhere else as a marriage chamber. Psalm 19.6, Joel 2.16, 2 
these refer to the marriage chamber, and it reminds us that the Messiah, the branch, the one who's coming, is coming for a bride, and it is a part of the new creation, that when the branch comes, things are going to be made new, and they are continuing to be made new. Jesus said, I make all things new. And when we finally get to Revelation chapter 21, we see the bride of Christ coming down, uh, the new Jerusalem, and we are united both to that place and to the Messiah in this new world. And we are awaiting that new world, that new creation to be completely fulfilled, but it's already been started in the work of Christ. So Isaiah gives us pieces and glimpses of this. Uh, I, I believe we need to be careful with how we interpret the imagery here. It says that there'll be a pillar of fire and smoke, and that is a, an allusion back to Sinai when God was leading the people of Israel through the wilderness with those uh, same phenomena. But that doesn't mean that those will physically be present in the new heaven and new earth. I think that's just a reminder that God's presence will be there. God's presence was made manifest through smoke and fire in the past. And so Isaiah uses that imagery to communicate God's ongoing presence with his people when we get to the new heaven and new earth. The final thing we'll look at today is the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. This is a parable that Jesus will make reference to as he's communicating to the Pharisees that they have fallen short and they have refused to bear fruit. So Israel has in the past, as Isaiah records here, refused to bear fruit for God. What is the fruit of God? Well, it's not sacrifices and it's not new moons and festivals. It's not uh, any kind of feasts. It's not an external righteousness. The fruit that he's looking for is the heart for God that would uphold the law and obey the commandments in such a way that the widows were being taken care of and the orphans will be, were being provided for. That's the kind of heart that honors God, and they're not doing that. They're not exalting God. They're exalting themselves. They're exalting men who seem strong and have a lot of gold and a lot of chariots. That's the heart that they have. And so Jesus says, look, the Israelites, the, the people of Judah in the Old Testament were fruitless, even though God had given them everything. He had given them prophets. He had given them judges. He had given them kings. He had given them everything that they needed to be righteous and to bear fruit, and they didn't. And so what's going to happen? They're going to destroy the vineyard. They're going to tear down the tower. They're going to tear down the walls. They're going to just dig it all up and burn it to the ground. That's the final end of this vineyard. And Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees saying, it's going to be no different with you guys. And it's not because in 70 AD, Titus comes in leading the Roman army and they burn Jerusalem to the ground. Why? Because they were fruitless. And Jesus has made it clear to his people that if you love him, you will obey his commandments. You will bear much fruit. And so we need to evaluate our lives always and to ask the question, am I a fruit bearer as I am being an image bearer of the one and true holy God? We'll stop there for today. We'll pick up next time on the Bible Brush Up. Bye.